Welcome to Success Is Podcast. I'm your host, Phil Portman, serial entrepreneur, author, and podcast host. Whether success for you is more money, time with your family, a healthy, well-balanced life, or freedom, I'm interviewing guests and getting you the advice to make it happen. So join me as we uncomplicate the complicated, help you define success, and give you the strategies to make it happen. How would you define success personally? Yeah, I mean, so definitely not just in terms of monetary. I guess uh, success to me is uh, being able to spend my time how I want, and that manifests in a few different ways um, with my family. Um, I'm a religious person, so with my church, I also enjoy obviously trying to, I think of work as just trying to make it the most efficient uh, process possible. So I know how much money I need for a specific lifestyle, right? Or, or what I kind of want out of life. So as long as I'm kind of meeting that, and if I can compress how many hours I need to make X amount of dollars, um, that's kind of my, I guess that's kind of how I look at most things. I look at how can I be more efficient in my process and my business so that I don't have to work an 80 hour week. So when I got licensed for mortgage, I started at Quicken, which obviously a lot of people have. And, you know, they have a business model that works, but it's pretty much predicated on, you know, hiring college grads that work 70 hours a week. And as someone with a family, I had, um, you know, two kids, I had one on the way. Um, but all of that didn't seem to fit with what would work in their, in the way they ran their business, I guess. So um, I left there, obviously I went to Caliber because it is, it's a, it's basically a hundred percent commission job. So I can work as much or as little as I want. And then if I'm putting enough on the plate that my wife is content and I'm content and all my time afterwards can be family time or time, you know, in the church or in the community helping people. So, yeah, I guess to me, it's, we only have one life, right? So why spend all your hours working once you know kind of what you need to be content um, I think then you can start pursuing personal hobbies or other other activities that may not make you a ton of money, but they make your quality of life, um, you know, better than I think money would at that point. Gotcha. What challenges have you seen, like branching off onto your own? Like, what's your what's the biggest struggle that you saw, um, kind of jumping on your own? Yeah, I'm pretty risk averse, so. For me, it was like leaving, especially W-2 employment, where you have a, like this guaranteed floor of money. Um, so before Quicken, I worked at Wayne State. I was just a W-2 employee, worked more in IT at that time. Um, I started dabbling in real estate because I knew I didn't want to work for someone else my whole life. I would eventually want to do something. I found real estate to be one of the lowest cost, highest potential um, ventures that you could kind of do on your own or kind of do part-time until it took off into something. So for me, it was just losing that security and then just realizing I would have to source my own business. But at the end of the day, I came to realize if you are if you have that motivation, like you, if I have a family that has to eat, like I'll work, if I have to work 80 hours to put food on the table, I know I will do that if I have to. But then the, the converse part of that is eventually, even if I have to do that at first, I won't have to. And again, I can, I hope compress the time I'm spending working 
but still producing an income that's at or above what I was making as a W-2 employee. But that was the hardest for me. It's just that initial letting go and not, uh, you almost have a dependency as a W-2 employee that it's hard to like just trust yourself to be successful. And I think that was the biggest obstacle, at least mentally for me, is going, no, we can do this. Just, we got to go give it. There's some risk in it. You got to take the risk. What did your family think of you diving into that, leaving the W-2 security for something like that? Yeah, I, I have to say there was some nerves, but my wife knew that I wasn't content doing the W-2. And I think for her, that was kind of, she was more worried about me being content even if I only made, let's say I was, I was making about 70,000 at Wayne, even if I went to making 40,000, but I was content, I think that would still have been tolerable for her because we could have made ends meet. And then maybe my qual my qualities as a husband would probably be better because I'm not as miserable. I don't feel like I'm tied to a job where there's no movement. Um, I think those factors kind of tied in. But yeah, I can't say that there was never any conversations. There was some risk there. Now she does work too, but uh, you know she dabbles in photography. That's kind of her little side hustle. And I said, well, the goal is eventually if I'm doing this, you know, then you can leave your nine to five and you can just do your photography. So it's kind of a, a joint venture is kind of how we look at it is she was going to school. I was W2 at Best Buy with you, right? And then, so I was helping pay for her college while she was doing that. And I was pretty much the breadwinner. She wasn't working. And now she, now I leaned on her a little bit, making money as a W2 employee while I'm trying to start my uh, personal sales stuff. And then I think it's going to happen again where she'll then lean on me and then she'll start her stuff. So I think it's actually a great system. Um, uh, if you have someone that, you know, you can trust to do that, stuff with i think it's definitely advantageous especially if you want to take the risk to become your own employee absolutely um you know i think one of the the problems that it seems like you work from from home part of the time too is is the overlap right so um you know sitting at the the, the kitchen table eating dinner and you got a, a customer calling you and that sort of thing um is that something that comes up a lot um with with currently and and do you see is it any strains on your relationship or how do you handle that sort of thing so yeah i will say i'm pretty much attached to my phone especially starting off you know i have about a year of being fully on my own kind of self-employed now um there is some you know pushback but at the end of the day and i don't really have to remind my wife but she understands that you know the service I give to people leads to referrals, which leads to more business, which will eventually lead to what she wants too, which is maybe just doing photography on her own. Um, so I think, you know, like everything, we tend to forget that stuff in the short time periods, you know, between the busy life of having kids and all that. But I think, you know, at the end of the day, she's really understanding that I'm trying to provide a service that is really kind of a commodity, right? You can get a mortgage rate from thousands of different companies and people. So what I need to do to stand out is how I serve my customers. So I, I tend to be very responsive on the phone. I respond to text, email, phone calls pretty much immediately. Um, or if I can't, I will at least text back, say, hey, I'm busy right now. Um, so I'm still learning to balance some of that because yeah, like there are some things in life that, you know, you have to kind of respect the privacy of people and 
try not to step those boundaries. But for the most part, um, people tend to contact me during business hours. Um, and if I have to be on the phone after hours for specific things, you know, my wife has been pretty understanding about that. Great. Uh, what's your like what's your what's your your goals now with specifically around the business and uh, in, in growth right now? So, I mean, I've had a pretty good first year. I exceeded my my personal goal that I set for myself in terms of when I came in. Um, but it's been a good year for the market generally in terms of like rates and stuff. So I'm trying to determine how much of that is like the activities I did versus just favorable market conditions for refinancing and, and other stuff. Um, but my goal at this point now is to start connecting with other essentially entrepreneurs, real estate agents, right? Insurance, insurance providers, title companies, everyone that touches a part of the, the housing pie really is who I want to build a network with. I want them to just basically give me a shot, send me a client, and then ask your client, how did I do at the end of that process? And, um, so what I, what I'm doing to track that is I basically just use a spreadsheet. Um, I put in, I, I try to contact a minimum of like four real estate agents a week and just say, Hey, my name's Mike. I work for caliber, love to go over some of the things we can offer. We do have some unique products that everybody can offer in the mortgage space. So just doing that. And I think building up a network of referral partners is kind of the, the goal in this industry. If you're not working for like a, Quicken where you're paying $70, $80 a lead and you're just on the phone all day. I'm not on the phone all day. So I have to figure out another way to kind of build up that business. Yeah. Different strategy for it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Um, so currently um, you're, you're, you know, a lot of your efforts are um, on your own. Have you, do you, are you utilizing technology or any automation strategies to help with, with some of the growth? Our company has, so I would say not for procuring new business. Um, obviously, once we have clients that are, you know, in our uh, start in process with us, from there on, they're in our ecosystem. They get emails like automated from me, you know, like every birthday or holiday, there'll be something they'll get in their email. So I'd say yes on the back end if there's clients I've already contacted, served, but not so much on the like, pursuing real estate agent side how do i keep in contact with them and make sure that every touch is kind of you know not overwhelming i don't want to just go to their spam but also you know something specific that is tied to them directly uh, what do you think differentiates you in the business um is it a lot of that that hands-on personal touch that you're doing right now yeah i think so i mean it, it helps that i so i have my uh mba and i got I got a degree in finance when I did my MBA outside. So my undergrad was in IT and I liked that work, but I always knew if I was going to stay in the W2 world, I want to be a manager, something not line level. So I, I decided to do the finance route when I got my MBA. And I think I do kind of utilize a lot of the skills I got there. The thing is, it's, it depends who you're talking to. Some people just want the quick and easy. Hey, I'm going to make this easy for you. Send me your documents. They don't want to get into the nitty gritty, but I found a real niche, like a lot of engineers really like me because they kind of want to dig into the like analytical side of things and they want to know, you know, how much money am, am I, they want to know all the details. So someone that wants to know details, I have like a natural uh, 
affinity for someone like that because that's that's how I kind of work, right? Um, whereas some people just are like, yeah, dude, that's fine. I trust you. Just do this. <laughs> Um, but so that probably I, helps build some of the trust when you can get into the 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 you know granular details there, right? Yeah, exactly. So it's nice having that ability to kind of do both. But yeah, it's actually been more of a struggle to me. It's not going to a lot of the details when it's someone who it just overwhelms them um, because there are a lot of details in a mortgage that you know that you can like look at. And uh, so it's been a little bit of a learning process in terms of not overwhelming people with information. Uh, and then being more concise with my words and, and kind of practicing that so that um, I can still inform people, but not overwhelm them. Yeah. So um, obviously the, the, the MBA and then working for Quicken, a lot of knowledge from there. Um, is there any other place that you've been getting a lot of your knowledge? Do you have a mentor or anything that's helped you along the way? Yeah, I mean, the, the people I work with are great. Um, you know, some of the agents I work alongside our million dollar a year plus agents. So I have a great resource pool, I think, just from just down the office, if I'm in the office to say, hey, I have a question, can someone help me? Um, also, there's obviously a lot of changing regulations with this. So we have to stay pretty updated in terms of annual certifications for every state that you're licensed in, um, and then for the national exam. So that generally does it, I mean, Luckily, it's like a lot of small changes over time. It's not like 52 changes a day. It's like one change a week, maybe every week. So you get an email about it, you read about it, and you kind of bring that in. But I'll be honest, I, I just, I'm kind of a financial nerd. So I just, I take through the stuff a little bit as well. Like I actually enjoy looking at it. So most of my learning was driven around like personal curiosity, I guess, not so much this like, uh, you know, other than the licensing process, not just like, oh, I just have to know all these rules and stuff like that. Yeah. So what can you tell me about the market right now? Because I know a lot of investors as a whole, um, it seems like are keeping their money out of real estate right now. Is is that a good idea? And, and, and what do you see going on with the market? Yeah, I think there's two, I have two opinions on it. So Obviously, the all-time high stuff is kind of nerve-wracking in terms of real estate, but I think the inflationary pressure is going to support those pricings. Uh, I just think with how much money we're printing in Washington that rates have to go up. Uh, I think, you know, you can see the cost of goods going up pretty much everywhere, and I think housing is actually a pretty safe asset to house your money in, so... You know, right now I'm even pre-approved for a loan to buy an investment property because while I think we are at a, a high time to buy overall, I just don't know how we're going to escape all the money we're printing. Um, and I think that inflation is going to keep our prices high, if not push them up higher. And if you have cash in the bank, you know, I, I can't, can't see that cash in the bank helping you at all when essentially what, what I think to be a, a good amount of inflation coming our way. I think you're going to lose more money with that cash in the bank than in a property or some other asset that will appreciate. Got it. Um, so currently with the, the, the state of the market, what I hear time and time again from people is, you know, if, if you're not going to an offer with a large amount of cash, 
then there's no way you're gonna gonna get that house. Um, that's particularly troubling for new home buyers or first time home buyers. Is is that what you're experiencing in the market? And do you have any advice for them? So, I think a lot. So probably in the summer, I think it started to slow down a lot. I mean, I have a lot of people that you know I do mortgages, right? So almost all the clients I have buying homes don't have a ton of cash. A lot of times our first time home buyers, they're doing as little as 3% down, stuff like that. Um, I, but it was true. I mean, you, you definitely, if you don't have a cash offer, you're probably going to have to offer more money because there's less security in that for the seller. But if you're willing to, you know, finance some of that money and pay a little bit more, I, I think you're just as likely to get an offer accepted. Um, Cause at the end of the day, they're getting paid either way. Um, there's also some cool strategies. A lot of people right now I've talked to about doing a cash out refi on their house so that they can put a cash offer on a property. So that's like a strategy that I would talk to people about that most people don't think of. If you have $200,000 of equity in your home and we can cash that all out, uh, then you can just go place a cash offer on a $200,000 home. When you sell your next home, you can then pay off that lien and then you're done. So there's definitely different ways that we can try to tackle it. Part of my job for everyone is seeing if I can move them up in terms of competitiveness to get a house. So if you're someone who's an FHA buyer, then there's like a conventional buyer above it. And then there's a cash buyer above that. We're always looking at like, what can we do to move you up the ladder to put you in the best spot possible so that when you put offers in on a house, you know, it's a, it's a better chance that it gets accepted. And how would you do that? Like, so on somebody like an FHA that that doesn't have a ton of cash, I mean, how do you how do you increase their um, competitiveness? Right. So we can do uh, gifts. Uh, well, so if I'm trying to move someone from FHA to conventional, I have actually some pretty cool tools. Like, I have a credit score simulator, so I can see like, okay, if you pay off this debt or if you have this collection and we're able to remove it can we move your credit score up to be qualified for like conventional lending? And if I can do that, the money down is actually, a lot of people have this conception with conventional loans. You still need like 10, 15 or 20% down. We actually have conventional products with only 3% down, which is actually lower than FHA, which is three and a half percent down minimum. So obviously there's a lot of ways to do that. Um, the credit score one is usually the obstacle for most people that are restricted to the FHA lending side because you can't really do conventional um, after or underneath a 620 credit score. So it depends on what's wrong with that person's file in terms of what do we have to course correct for to move them up in competitiveness. But, uh, you know, we have a number of tools depending on what it is. If it's a cash thing, if we need more money, you know, there's gifts, there's ways we can structure gifts. Um, from like family, friends, stuff like that to, again, make it so we don't have to do these special loans that are probably less advantageous or they, they feel risky to the sellers, but they're, you know, they're pretty stable. So with the, with the conventional, are they, are they still paying like a, like a PMI uh, on the 5% rate? Yeah. So they would still pay PMI, anything under 20% equity, you still have PMI, but what's, crazy about PMI is it's very much tied to your credit score. So uh, I have someone who just did a 5% down loan on a $300,000 property. Their PMI is like 50 bucks a month. It's not a lot, but they have a really excellent credit score. 
So that same PMI, if they weren't at like over a 740, if they were at say, uh, you know, like a 680, which is still good enough for conventional financing, you're just going to see the mortgage uh, insurance policy. That's going to be a bit higher because they pretty much take all the mortgage insurance premium risk off of almost solely your credit score. Gotcha. What's affecting majority of people's uh, credit score? Is it like debt to income or is it? Uh, the biggest thing is obviously if you have any derogatory marks, so missed payments, stuff like that. Uh, second, or maybe first, even before that might be your credit utilization ratio, which is like, you know, if you have $10,000 of total available credit and you're using 8,000 of it, you have an 8% utilization ratio. Um, the, the best scores come with the utilize, utilization ratio under 10%. So that's probably the biggest factor. Obviously, there's a ton of it. And I'll be honest, I'm not, I wouldn't even call myself a credit expert. But the things that I see that people do that help them the most is lower their utilization, um, make sure they get all the errors off their credit reports if they have them. Most people don't even know what's on their credit report. But something like 40% of credit reports have at least one error on it. Um, so usually just removing any collections, derogatories, and then lowering our utilization is enough to move us up pretty substantially in terms of credit score. I took one person had a um, a judgment that for a collection of medical debt for like 80 bucks. He didn't even wow. realize credit report. He was at a 678. He called the creditor and he got it removed. It went to 778. So he wow. did a jump just from doing one little thing. So, in what uh, span, span of time was that that he did that? Oh, it was like two weeks. Really? Wow, that's incredible. Yep. And so there was he went in for some diagnostic thing, and didn't realize there was a copay. Never got the bill in the mail. He moved, so then it got sent to collections. So when he called them, he was like, "Yeah, I have a. I'm not going to like throw away my credit score over eighty bucks. I'll pay the eighty bucks." So he paid it. They were able to remove it off the credit report, so it was like it wasn't even there anymore. And he our company to do that. He just called the, the, the creditor and said, hey, if I pay this, will you remove it? It was an error. I'm sorry. The, he was able to. And then we re-ran his credit. It was, like I said, 100 points higher. Yeah. No, it's, I get that's easy to do. I had one of my companies that we had rental properties. And I, I don't remember exactly what happened here. But it was uh, some sort of utility bill or something like that that was sent to the location instead of us. And we never knew about it. And years later, I ended up getting something finally at, at the at our business address with it that said it was, you know, significantly past due and all of this other stuff. Well, they had been sending it to the location, you know, or the, the, the house the entire time and we would never even known about it. And so it was kind of an interesting situation that that happened. So I completely understand how someone could completely miss something like that. Yep. Yeah. I mean, and that totally changed like I went from offering them like a 3.625 and a pre-approval to like, uh, you know, 3.125. It was like a half percent, which is pretty significant when you're already down that far. Uh, so it was huge in terms. And then his mortgage insurance went from what what this was on like almost $500,000 home. Mortgage insurance went from like $300 a month to like $70. So wow. it was a huge difference of what we could offer once we figured out what was kind of causing this credit to come in a little bit lower. Do you have people like getting their foot in the door with, uh, let's say a certain mortgage with the intent of refinancing a little bit down the road to get it back in line with where they want actually want to be? Yeah. I mean, occasionally 
the problem I always have with that is that I just tell people, it's like, I don't have a crystal ball. Don't know what the rates are going to be when you have to do it. Um, so just as long as you're willing to take that risk and understand, like, you might get in a rate right now that's actually better uh, than what will be in the future when you want to refinance. But we won't know until we're there. So as long as you're not uh, risk averse to that, I actually have someone that's looking at refinancing right now to pay off, do a debt. Uh, consolidation, but he's looking to really move. So what I told him, I said, is instead of getting a super low rate, we should actually take your rate a little bit higher. We'll give you a lender credit. We're going to pay for your closing costs because why spend three grand closing a loan when you're going to just do it again in like six months? Um, so I, instead of giving him like a three and a half, we'll give him a 4% interest rate. He'll pay an extra 30 bucks a month, but he's only going to be there for like six months. So he's going to pay 180 bucks and I'm going to give him like 4,000 bucks at closing, help cover his closing costs. And then he's going to buy a new property. That's when we want to get you the low rate. You're going to be in there for a while, stuff like that. So there's a lot of different like ways that people can kind of manipulate that. Not a lot of people understand the difference. So I don't know. Do you know what points are on a loan? I, I don't know how versed you are in mortgages, but. Just from buying homes. I've never, never, never done mortgage or, or dealing, you know, obviously with dealing with real estate, you know. Yeah. Um, so, so I'll just try to explain this real quick. So when a lender gives you an interest rate, there's going to be a cost associated with it always. It's either zero points and then any, it could be like 0.127 points. It could be a half a point, a full point, whatever. So let's say an off, uh, a lender is offering you a 3% interest rate at one point. One point is 1% of the loan amount. So if your loan amount is 200,000, it's 2000 bucks to get this interest rate. Well, you can go up in interest rate and then I can give you a lender credit instead of costing you money. So the lender, there's like a, a matrix basically that says, depending on what rate you want, you're either gonna pay this much money or we'll give you this much money. So depending on how long you're gonna be in a property really determines what makes the most sense for you. A lot of people think points are bad, but if you know you're gonna be in a property for 30 years, you're going to pay it off on time, you're not gonna pay extra, whatever. Points usually make sense. You're gonna buy the interest rate down by spending money up front, but you'll save that over the long run. The opposite is true if you know you're gonna be in a property a really short amount of time. Let's give you a lender credit at a higher rate to give you money back, because you know that you're gonna get a new loan here pretty quickly when you move or refinance or whatever. So depending on what that looks like for each person, I try to kind of tailor their interest rate to kind of what they see. I ask clients, is this a five-year house, a 10-year house, forever home? You know, you're only planning on being there two years. And then I just let them know, obviously, if you deviate from what you tell me, that's going to affect what happens, but we don't know the future. So that's just inherent in the risk of that. Got it. Um, how are appraisers appraising houses right now? And how they, I, I haven't been up to date on it in, in the last couple of years, but you know, with, with the way markets are going, I mean, I, I gotta think it's difficult for them to get an accurate um, valuation of a home. Is that, is that accurate or what are you finding? It, it's not, they tend to lag the market a little bit because they're looking for those other comparable properties that have sold close to that. So I'll be honest. I mean, I've had a few properties come back low, but most of the time we get it, uh, you know, we get close to what we want. I think the, 
the biggest issue for people is they don't understand that the appraiser is a it's a separate portion. Not really, it's not really me. It's not really the real estate agent or anyone else. This sure. is a third party that really they're they're they, they have like a standard set of procedures for every property to evaluate them. And they changed a lot of those rules after the last housing crisis. Yeah, they did. And, and they have, but they have such a strict set of standards. People don't understand. It's very hard to get, I mean, unless you have newer comps or th there are ways to do a rebuttal to an appraisal, but you actually have to do some diligence and find the properties that are comparable so that they can adjust their numbers. So that's actually one thing I like about having been a real estate agent before this is I kind of understand a little bit about the real estate agent side that I can look for properties and try to defend or get people's appraisal to the number they want. If it's realistic, if it's outside of the realm of reality, it is what it is. Um, but we've seen a lot of people in this market do appraisal waivers or, or, or above appraisal guarantees. Those are pretty popular right now. So Again, people are still willing to pay above appraisal prices if they have the cash to do it. That's usually the, that, that's where the rubber kind of meets the road. If you don't have the cash to pay over the appraised amount, well, the lender is only going to lend, lend up to what they think that property is worth. So they're not doing like the, the pre-market crash, 125% loan to value type things anymore, or are they? Our, like I said, our highest LPV is a 97% with a 3% down conventional. Okay. Um, for conventional loans, there's obviously like VA and USDA that allow you to go to a hundred. So like a VA loan, you can borrow the, the full price of the property, but, um, but yeah, no, for conventional and FHA, uh, you can't go over a hundred. Gotcha. Are you following at all that Zillow, um, flipping houses thing or whatever they were doing? The, the, yeah, yeah. What, what happened with that? Yeah, it was. Um, so, so yeah. Zillow kind of got in the business of just offering people money for their homes based on aggregate data. So they would just say, you know, in this zip code with this many square feet, this is your price per square foot, we'll offer you XYZ money. So they would just basically send everyone who used Zillow a cash offer of saying like, look, you know, we think your house is worth two, let's say they thought the house is worth 270. They'll just give you 250 cash. They think they're going to make 20,000. Well, what happened is they started losing a lot of their, they weren't able to sell those properties for what they thought they would sell for, especially when they started buying up a lot of the properties in the same areas. Mm -hmm. So what happens is they basically started offloading properties for under what they bought it for and under wow. what they tell you did that. So yeah, it's been kind of crazy seeing them. So they just announced a few weeks ago that they weren't going to, they're, they're kind of exiting the, uh, the home flipping slash relisting game that they uh they started yeah that's a that was a crazy model um yeah I was, I was taken back when i first heard about it i just didn't see them getting into that strategy it seems like a an incredibly risky strategy really yeah no it was uh it was definitely i'm not sure what they were uh i mean i think what they did is they just thought that their data was good enough that they could keep doing it but i think what they realize is like their data is not perfect because you are aggregating and houses are so unique it's hard to really know if that house like before i buy an investment property i would for sure do a ton of diligence on that one property i would never buy it just based on aggregate 
data like of what things in the neighborhood went for because that's a unique product really houses are unique products so i think they just had faith that maybe they would lose some but overall it would balance out in the end and they had such a big pocketbook that the risk probably palatable whereas mm -hmm. i don't think it really is for most real estate investors you want to kind of know what you're buying yeah no i remember uh, i don't know how it is now but you know you'd have like the gross point detroit border there you know on one side of the street there's a significant uh, uh value difference between you know those two areas so yep. um and that sort of thing it, especially with uh lakefront homes you know and things like that i mean that the, the properties are all so unique that in some of those lakefront homes, they literally set the price for whatever they want because the location uh, matters so much in that uh, situation. So the view and all those things as well. So. Yep. No, I, I think it's very hard to buy property without, I know even a few real estate were doing, they did transactions fully during Zoom during the pandemic, which I guess you can do, but man, I just, it would make me nervous on such a big investment mm -hmm. yeah but people do it virtual uh, tours and all that kind of stuff yeah all yeah. right i get that but like before i put an offer and now maybe the offers didn't have any emd or they were really low risk mm -hmm. but you know for me i want to actually walk the property i want to look at it make sure it you know looks good to me so yeah sure sure the only time i bought i bought some properties on auction that were sight unseen um, yep. and the, the only thing I was able to do in those situations was, was look at the exterior of the home and yeah, that was even high risk, but it was, I got to such a great price. It made sense, but yeah, I couldn't imagine doing that on a, on a normal, normal transaction. That'd be difficult to do. Yeah. hundred percent. No, I mean, like I said, I, people have different risks I, and honestly, pricing went up so much since the pandemic a big majority of my refis that I've done are just people wanting to escape PMI because values have gone up so much mm -hmm. that appraisal waivers often that, you know, yeah, we're basically just dropping your PMI. You have to pay closing costs again, but um, it can be Long worth term. it. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Especially if you're not planning on moving for a while. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. We, I mean, we did the same thing with, with our initial house. We bought it, um, uh, FHA, you know, my, my first house ever, yep. and then refinanced it to a conventional because we had the equity in the home. Um, so that was, I thought it was a great strategy for, for me being a brand new home buyer years ago. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I'll be honest. I, a lot of people too, don't realize even like uh, VA loans and FHA loans, there's some streamlined refinance options that really are very cheap. VA, a lot of VA loans, if you, uh, if you already have a VA loan, you do a streamlined refinance, we don't need to pull credit. Like you, you basically just have to still have your job. Like nice. we don't need credit, I don't need income documentation from you. I don't need it. As long as I can drop your interest rate by more than a half percent, because that's the, the legal minimum requirement for the VA, um, they make a ton of sense. It ends up costing like 2000 bucks for closing costs. And if you can save a hundred bucks a month and you're going to be there more than 20 months, it'll all wash out for you. So. Nice. Yeah, no, it makes sense. I, I think that, you know, one of the things that I, I've noticed with a lot of people that um, suffer financially or in life is that they look very short term. Right. And they don't understand that, you know, that, that you can do things very quickly to set up 
long-term success um, in things like, you know, going from renting a place to home ownership. Um, and it's things like you're describing. I mean, it could be done in as little as, you know, three to six months, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, again, I work with a lot of people who don't start off with a perfect file, and then we kind of have to move them towards, you know, getting ready to buy a home, making sure, you know, everything works. And there's a lot of, like, there's a lot of uh, navigation, I guess, that sometimes has to happen depending on what everything looks like. But I think people just don't realize there's a lot of, like, I have a friend who's rented his whole life, very successful person, makes more than $150,000. He's a PhD engineer at American Axle, right? He's always rented. He's nervous about buying because he's looking at, like, the taxes and the insurance. And I said, that's fine. I understand you're spending more than what you're renting now. But I said, you have to back out the equity that you're building every single month. Because if you don't count that, that's, I said, you have to just look at your house. It's like a big savings account, right? And some of the money you goes towards interest and taxes and all the other stuff. But when you add, when you subtract out the costs, the equity that you're building, it's actually much more affordable than people realize. People tend to just look at that, that monthly payment number, but they don't break it down and understand how much of that money do they keep and how much really is going out the window. So he has the, a monthly payment that's less than, than a mortgage. Well, he, yeah, his, well, his rent payment's only 1100, right? Oh. And he makes good money. So he's buying a decently expensive house. So I said, yeah, it's more expensive, but you don't keep any of that 1100, right? So this new $1,900 a month house payment, you get to keep a big chunk of that 1900 because a lot of it principal. He so, must be locked into a weird area then if he's only got like 1100 a month payment. I mean, that's- I think that's, it's like a bedroom. It's like, it's just a really tiny. So he re, he's recently divorced and yeah, it yeah. was, I just need something real quick until I land on my feet. So I think it was something like that. Yeah, I don't think yeah. it's, but I, I don't know if it's a very nice property and all that. Yeah, because in most areas, I mean, the, the, the rent is, you know, got, yeah. yeah, it's usually quite a bit higher than, than what you'd pay, pay for, you know, mortgage, even with taxes and insurance and all that stuff included. And well, usually, and I think a lot of that too, I think a lot of the reason the investors kind of backed off of properties in this past year was more the rent moratorium than it was because the money wasn't there on the properties. I think there was just too much risk of the government saying, hey, look, they can stay there and they don't have to pay. And then you're just on the hook for all the taxes. Oh, wow. Yeah. All that stuff. Yeah. Because the thing is, people look at these landlords as these, you know, yeah, or just they got they're sitting on a pile of cash, you know, um, and, and the fact of the matter is majority of them are leveraging the current property to buy new property and so on and so forth. And, you know, as we saw during the last housing crisis, as soon as there's a break in any of that, it all comes crumbling down really quickly. And that's yeah. how I know a lot of real estate investor strategy works is that you just keep leveraging, 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 leveraging. And you're buying more and more and more property and these guys are doing millions of dollars in property but it's all it's all leverage behind it that people don't you know a lot, a lot of these people don't have the cash to funnel through all these properties they're basically getting loans so yeah when when you miss a, a monthly rent payment your rent payment may be paying another property's 
you know, overhead, or if you have like tenants that are vacating and then you're waiting for new tenants to come in, there's a lot of different things that, um, you know, are risky for those investors. And a, a year of saying you can't charge people rent is, it did spook, I think, a lot of investors of dumping the properties because the values were high, right? Mm -hmm. Like, yeah. So they're like, well, I can get this money right now. And I don't know if and when I'll be able to collect rent on these things again, or if that if the virus comes back or whatever, like, I don't know what the government's going to do. So a lot of, I think the investor kind of anxiety is on the unclear message of government actors to tell us like what to expect. Like, I think if they're, if they're going to do something like the rent moratorium, it has to be like, it's going to be for six, like you have to tell us specifically what's happening and when it's coming online, when it's going offline. Because otherwise, it just looks like you're gambling with a huge amount of debt, potentially. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and most of these these people get into assets like real estate because they're looking for stable investment in times of turbulence. And that's usually a pretty stable investment unless there's outside <laughs> interference, right? Yeah. So... Yeah, no, I, I, so I think that's really what drove a lot of the investors to dump property. It's, it just was a very risky proposition to be like, hey, these people don't have to pay rent. And you didn't know when it was going to come back or go away or anything. So, well, thank you guys for watching today. Be sure to like and subscribe for more future episodes of Success Is Podcast. If you have any suggestions, please comment below. Look forward to seeing you next time.